We've had a wonderful Sunday already. A couple people placed their faith in Christ in the first service. We baptized a young woman named Elizabeth Wright. You couldn't see that because you're here now. At 9 o'clock, she was baptized, and baptistry kind of mingled with her tears. It was a great, great, holy, beautiful moment. And you've met my friend Justin and worshiped along with him. Uh, thank you, Justin, very much. Appreciate that. Uh, Justin, uh, Justin is a worship pastor, as, as you've been told, in Phoenix, Arizona. He loves his church. He's not so fond of Phoenix when it's the surface of the sun. Uh, so he occasionally escapes to these beautiful climbs. Isn't it nice here? Do you realize we griped recently? People were griping about 82-degree weather. You understand that in New England, they faced the worst temperature in like 20 years in New England? Elevators were freezing? Yeah. We're blessed, folks. Life's good, okay? God's good. And we get, besides all this, we have what matters most. We have a God who loves us, and it's my great privilege to tell uh, him uh, to open his book and tell you about him. Um, it's a good Sunday. I hope, you'll, uh, I hope you'll take some worship music home with you. Justin has a, a table in the back. He's not just a worship pastor. He's a singer-songwriter, and I've been listening to his music for the last several years. Uh, if you need some, some worship music at home or in your car, please stop by there and continue to enjoy the Lord. This last song we sang, Paul, the apostle who wrote the book of Philippians, would have been in agreement. He's going to give you a testimony of realizing that he was dead wrong. You ever realized you're dead wrong? <laughs> married men? Yeah, guy, somebody said I'm married. <laughs> you didn't realize, bro, you were helped. Uh, you were helped to understand, yes, that's one of the blessings of marriage, among others. Sometimes you realize you're dead wrong, and for most people, that's... Uh, it's a hard awakening because most of us think we're doing better than we actually are. One of my abiding fascinations with life, beginning with me, is how often I and the people around me underestimate how easy things are going to be or how good we are at doing any particular thing compared to the actual reality. You ever had a work project that you thought would take a couple hours and turned into a week-long project with an angry spouse and uh, disappointed children and confused friends. Happens to me all the time and occasionally, well, occasionally you get to meet someone who's really out of touch. Uh, as a pastor, part of, part of being a pastor is you're sometimes thrust into socially awkward situations. And one of my all-time favorites occurred Quite a few years ago at a wedding far from here, I officiated a wedding and ended up sitting next to a guy who had chosen publicly to present himself as an interesting person, okay? <laughs> Everything in his vibe was, I'm an interesting guy. So I, I bit, right? And I said, what do you do? And he said, I'm an artist. And I said, it's great. It must be very fulfilling. And he said this. He said, it is very fulfilling. There are only a few great artists in the world, and we all know each other. <laughs> well, I, I went to laugh, but thankfully looked back at him, and he was in dead earnest. 
And I said, well, it's, it's a great privilege to meet you in that case. That must be incredibly satisfying. And he said, it is. <laughs> like, bask in the greatness, man. And, and I did. We had the most wonderful reception together. I've often wondered just, I mean, was he right? I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I'm not an artist. I don't know if there are only a few great artists in the world and they all know each other. We'd have to call Kanye West and see if he knows, uh, <laughs> if he knows this particular guy. Truth of the matter is, most of us think we're doing better than we actually are, okay? Every boy who's ever played any sport, I did it many times, I would toss a football gently toward my bed and catch it so I could land on the bed, and that was a fingertip grab in the back of the end zone to give the Cowboys another world championship. <laughs> I eventually started playing with guys who could actually play and had this rude awakening that I was dead wrong. That's, what, that's what's going on in Philippians chapter 3. Paul is writing to a group of Christians in an ancient Gentile city a province in the Roman Empire, a city that was proud of itself. Rome had given it essentially all the legal rights that Roman citizens enjoyed. And these people had heard by a river, beginning at a riverbank and a little impromptu meeting where Paul met some, some people who had gathered to worship Jesus, who, who had gathered to worship rather in a, in a Jewish fashion, had Paul had told them about Jesus, and they had placed their faith in him. And from those small beginnings, a group of people doing the best they could to follow the Jewish religion, a group of Christians was born and a church was formed. And in due time, that church had pastors and even deacons and many members. And from the minute they heard about Jesus, they latched on to Paul and got heart to heart with him. They connected not just their hearts, but their wallets, and they supported Paul financially and in prayer, and sent him a person to help him while Paul was in prison from where he wrote this letter, all because they wanted to be, as Paul wrote, his partners in the gospel. They wanted to have a share. They wanted to have a stake in what Paul was doing, spreading the good news of Jesus around the world. So Paul wrote them this letter from prison to thank them and to encourage them. And in Philippians chapter 3, you're going to find let me just warn you, you're going to find in verse 2 some of the harshest language in the New Testament. Paul's going to flat out insult people using three different terms. And he's going to do so for a good reason. He's going to do so, he's going to be abundantly clear because when it's a matter of life and death, it's not the time to mince words. It's a time to be clear. If you've ever been on the scene of a life and death situation, maybe you've been on a roadside and you've seen first responders try to save someone from wreckage. Maybe you've been at a hospital where somebody suddenly codes and goes, their line goes flat. Clarity goes way up. And politeness, indirectness, Subtlety goes out the window. Why? Because lives are on the line. We don't have time to mince words. That's what's going on in Philippians 3. And Paul is doing so by way of telling his story how excruciatingly wrong he was. Let me show you what I mean. Philippians chapter 3, please. Paul's tackling this simple question, are you good enough for God? A question that everyone has, and of all the things where people could overestimate their ability and their standing, this is the worst. 
See, you could be like me and be a, a lower shelf football player and find out the hard way because of a transfer student from a high school in Michigan that you weren't that good at all. But all that cost me was a headache. It didn't cost me my life. There are some questions in life where if you overestimate your standing, it'll kill you. This one is eternally important. Everyone in their heart asks this question, are they, as they are, doing what they're doing, are they good enough for God? That's what Paul's going to take on, which is why he says in Philippians 3 verse 1, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. This is parent talk. He says, I want you to rejoice in Jesus, in the Lord. Not in your circumstances. Circumstances can be difficult. Paul himself is writing from prison. He has found his joy in Jesus, not in the circumstances of his life at the moment. And he says, I'm not tired of telling you the same things. It doesn't bother me at all to repeat myself. On the contrary, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. It is safe for you. In other words, I'm going to tell you something here to make you safe that will save your life. And here's where it gets harsh. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Paul is using every bit of his academic and religious credentials as a devout Jew and a man who was once a Pharisee, the strictest of the Jewish groups that observe Judaism. He's telling them what he found out and what he was so wrong about. You see, everywhere Paul went, there were people, sometimes they were there ahead of him, and they always followed him. As soon as people heard about Jesus, other sincere religious people arrived and said this, Jesus is good, but if you're ever going to be with God, you need to get circumcised like we have. You need to get acquainted with the Old Testament law that Moses gave to us, which are God's instructions to his chosen people. And you better get busy observing all the commandments that he has given us, beginning with circumcision, or you will be outside the family. Everywhere Paul went, he was fighting that headwind of that false message. If you're interested in the technical terms, though, that group is called in Bible study Judaizers. Because what they wanted to do is make Jewish converts. They wanted the men to be circumcised. They wanted the home to go to synagogue. They wanted everyone to do the best they could, keeping not only the law of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, but also all the traditions that men had stacked up on top of God's holy law. Paul says in verse 2, those super Jews, those super Hebrews, those super religious people, and then he chooses three terms. Did you notice them? What's he call them first? Dogs. Then he calls them evil workers, evildoers, and finally, mutilators of the flesh. I mean, this is hard stuff. This is at least PG-13 kind of rating in the Bible, right? Why so strong? Why so harsh? Every one of those insults, because that's actually what they are, they're saying, listen, they're telling you how to be right with God. They're actually unclean. They like to call people who aren't in the club dogs. That's what they are themselves. They're that separated from a true knowledge of God. 
They think they're going to lead you into a lifetime of doing good deeds. They're actually evil workers. They think they're going to welcome you into God's family by circumcision. All they're actually going to do is tear into your flesh. Man, strong stuff. Why is he so clear? He wants them to know on the front side, the most sincere and religious person, what Paul discovered is the most sincere and religious person is not, can never be good enough for God. In verse 3, Paul says, it's actually we who have trusted Jesus. We're the circumcision. It hasn't happened in our flesh. It's happened, as the Old Testament itself says, in our heart. We worship by the Spirit of God, not by ritual. We glory in Christ Jesus, our glory, our hope, the credit goes to him, and we put no confidence in the flesh. And then Paul gives his resume. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Ready to hear Paul's pedigree? You ever applied for a job and had to produce your resume? And you go through this effort of finding every good thing you were ever connected to, right? And you brought the guy who'd made the real decisions lunch once, so you say, I was part of a team (laughs) that produced a billion-dollar initiative. Yeah. Yeah, you were there. You were bringing the coffee in and out. But, you know, I was part of the team. I'd pull every single thing. I remember doing that, applying for scholarships. You know, if, if I ever gave a stranger a bottle of water. I'm like, compassion. I'm big compassion. <laughs> Huge heart for thirsty people. You know, whatever it takes. <laughs> Paul's going to roll out his spiritual pedigree, and this is not exaggeration. This is public record. This is what Paul's famous for. Check it out, verse 4. He says, uh, verse 5, I was circumcised on the eighth day, just when God said to be circumcised, of the people of Israel, Of the tribe of Benjamin from which rose King Saul, which was once Paul's name, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, those who were by their own choice and designation, they were set apart. It wasn't enough for them to receive the Scripture, the promises, the blessings, and the warnings of God. They said, we're a cut above. We're not in the regular army. We're Green Berets. We're Rangers. We're Navy SEALs. We really take it seriously. We are set apart. And Paul adds to that, he says, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. How deeply was Paul convinced that he was right and that he had found his own righteousness, that in he, by his careful obedience to what God had said, was good enough for God? He said, I was actually persecuting the Christian church as to righteousness under the law. Here's a surprising word. What's he say he was? Blameless. See, sometimes you get this, I think, completely mistaken notion that Paul was a guy who was doing his best but had a troubled conscience, and that when Paul stood one day and watched others assassinate Stephen for preaching about Jesus, Paul held their coats, he watched the thing, he, he watched their outer garments, which they took off to be able to throw more freely. Some people have said from that, Paul left with a troubled conscience, very troubled and brokenhearted about what he had done. That's not Paul's testimony at all. He said, every day of my life, as far as I knew, I did everything God asked. Concerning the law, I was blameless. My conscience was clear. I was doing good. That's his spiritual pedigree, and you have one too. 
Every single one of us, when we're pressed to this idea that one day we will give an account of our lives to the God who made us, we will look to our own standing and roll out, short or long as it may be, our spiritual pedigree. A friend of mine, before he met Christ and he struggled for a long time to humble himself and tell Jesus that he needed rescuing, he needed Jesus to save him, he would summarize it this way, I try to do the right things for the right reasons. That's his religion. Everybody has one. It may not have a name, it may not have gatherings on a Saturday or a Sunday, but everyone has a religion where they're doing the best they know how, and when they think of death and judgment and what happens one minute after you die, everybody's doing the best they can, the best they know how, and somehow deep in their heart hoping that it's good enough. Watch Paul's turnaround, watch him wake up. He says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as, what? I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Wow. Paul's using accounting language here in his writing. He's saying, I thought I was making all kinds of good deposits that would put me in a good standing with God so that when he called the account, I would have plenty to show. What he says is, what I actually found in is everything I thought I was depositing as a credit was actually a debit. It was speaking against me. It was a loss. I thought I was on direct deposit and the stuff was piling up. Those were actually debits against my account and I discovered one day that I was bankrupt. Paul is referring without a doubt to the day he met Jesus alive back from the dead and cowered in the dust and in that moment surrendered and called him Lord. At that moment, he said, I flipped the books. I thought I had a lot of savings built up. I was actually bankrupt. And the harsh language in this passage is for this reason, for anyone who's listening, Christian or people who are trying to decide how to be good enough for God, here's what you actually need to know. Anyone or anything who keeps you away from Jesus is deadly to you. That's why Paul calls people dogs and evil workers and flesh mutilators. Because when life is on the line, you have to prioritize clarity. Years ago, Korean Air had one of the worst safety records in the airline industry. And as they studied that, an American consultant helped them fix the problem. As they studied that, they found out that the problem was happening inside the cockpit, and it had not to do with proficiency, but with culture. See, if you've ever studied culture, there's a concept in culture called power distance, which means how much respect, how much verticality is there between relationships, okay? The Pope has high power distance, okay? Nobody walks in and calls him by his first name. Military organizations, police, fire, those have high power distance. Asian cultures in general have a lot of power distance, much more than we do here in the United States, where we call almost everybody by their first name. What they found out was in those cockpits, as things went wrong, if the captain didn't know it, if the man actually flying the plane didn't realize that they were in trouble, they would listen to the black box after the disaster, after everyone was dead, and find out that the second man aboard or the navigator was actually telling the pilot in very polite, culturally appropriate language, we're in deep trouble here, check it out. But in that storm and in that stress, he couldn't hear, and they would fly politely right into the side of the mountain. 
it would sound like this, Captain, perhaps we should check the altitude. And he didn't understand because they're in a storm and they've lost an engine and there's thunder and lightning everywhere around. He didn't have clarity on what was actually being communicated in a very respectful way to him. How did they change that? They made all kinds of changes. The simplest one, in the cockpit, everyone speak in English. And because Americans treat everybody like anybody else, practically, speaking in English leveled the playing field, leveled the culture, and their, their safety record improved greatly. That's what Paul's doing here. He once says, I was, as it turns out, I was one of the dogs. I was one of the evil workers. I was one of the flesh mutilators. I know where these guys are coming from, and I know where it leads. So anything or anyone who keeps you from trusting Jesus is deadly to you. They will cost you your life if you don't have the realization that Paul made in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for Christ. That's in the past. That's what he did that afternoon on the road to Damascus. Look at verse 8. He says, I'm still going. I still think this way. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything I once thought was helping, as it turns out, was actually hurting me. Now I've changed my goal. What does Paul say is his chief ambition in life? He wants to what? He wants to know Jesus. He's the boss. That's what Lord means. He's not a helper. He's not a coach. He's not an assistant. I count, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's, that's as good and high a language as Paul can muster. Jesus is his name. Christ means that he is the one that God sent and anointed to be the Savior of the world. Lord means he runs everything. And Paul says, my great ambition now is to know him. For his sake, he said, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish in our English Bible could be accurately translated excrement in Greek. And the language couldn't get any clearer. It couldn't get any more dramatic. It couldn't be any harsher, really, in some senses. Paul is telling you what I thought was once gain for me was actually trash. It was actually deadly things that were leading me away from Christ. My great ambition is to have him, verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But instead, he's contrasting, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see the contrast he's making? Paul said, in my previous life, before I met Jesus, I was working awfully hard at it. Now, I want to have a genuine relationship with God that comes simply by faith. In other words, by trusting Him. To put this amazing, lofty passage in the clearest words I can, I would say this. Everyone chooses between being self-righteous or Christ-righteous. That's the choice that you have in front of you. Now, let's be honest. We're talking in the family here. Do Christians have a reputation as being self-righteous? You see how contradictory that is? See, sometimes we act as people who rescued ourselves. 
who were in great spiritual danger but figured it out and were smart enough, determined enough, godly enough, consistent enough, sacrificial enough, we gave enough, and we made it. And we're like the great heroes who are writing memoirs, telling people humility and how I achieved it. <laughs> that didn't make sense to you. Give it a second. It's a time delay. It's a time delay joke. It's the greatest irony. It's the greatest contradiction of the good news of Jesus that anyone who claims him and names him would ever come across as self-righteous. Let me give you my testimony. If God called me to account for the things I've done in my life, including this week, I'd be dead. Just like that. See, the God I have to do with, the Bible explains to him that everything is open and naked to his sight. There is nothing hidden from him. Have you ever done the right thing for the wrong reason? You ever loved or sacrificed or given hoping that someone will notice? God sees right through that. Too many times people have come to me after a sermon and saying, Pastor, that was really good. Yes, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> I would never say that. That's transparently awful, but there's something inside my heart that works two ways. Please tell me that was good or I know that was bad. Please tell me it was okay. What is that? That's self-seeking. God wants nothing to do with it. I'm just like you. I lie and seek my own interest on a regular basis. And what my discipleship consists of is more and more trying to arrive at the place where Paul is to understand that all of those things, those attainments, those achievements of doing it on my own are deadly trash. Not only worthless, but actually fatal. Paul says his realization of what actually gave him life in verse 9, he says, I want to gain Christ, to be found in him, verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, in other words, from circumcision and careful obedience, from careful religiosity, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. In Christ, the righteousness from God, in other words, that's a gift that depends on faith. You can either strive for it or you can trust God for it. In other words, self-righteous means you're trying. Christ-righteous means you're simply trusting. See, most people have a cooperative sense of religion. They do good things either directed by their own conscience or perhaps directed by their religious institution that tells them these are the things that will give you credit. If you do enough of these things, the account will go up. You do these other bad things, the account will go down and we'll settle it later. When we lived in Mexico, John Paul II died while we lived there and over 100 million people were thrown into genuine grieving. And I never saw a more clear picture of people striving and hoping and trying for the best than I did that afternoon as I listened to the radio because two important voices from the Vatican, two very high officials inside the Catholic Church came on the radio and said two different things. One said, rejoice because our Father is in heaven. The other said, pray with us that John Paul II may soon be in heaven. And I thought to myself, they're giving contrasting messages because they're not sure 
See, that's the trouble with any kind of religion, including religion that calls itself Christian. You know in your conscience that you're blowing it and that spiritual goodness is flowing out of the account. You're also trying to do your best and hoping that Matt makes a deposit, but nobody will show you the scoreboard. And you have no idea how you're doing. That's why Paul says, everything that I thought was helping, I now understand as loss. I understood that the day I met Jesus. I still do. I consider my best achievement so much trash. And what I want now is to be found not in my own righteousness, but in Christ simply because I trust him to give me that as his gift purchased by his death on the cross when Jesus died for my sins. That's the good news. All the pressure is off. Most people have a cooperative sense of religion. It's a little bit like repelling. This is an active athletic crowd. How many of you have been repelling? All right, a few. A few bold souls. See military guys putting their hand up, yeah. See, the way repelling works is you anchor yourself to a higher point and you control the descent. There's some cooperation there because you have to trust the anchor, but you also have to control your descent. If it's a 3,000-foot drop like someone told me about between services, if you just jump off and don't apply the brakes, you'll die at the end of that. So most people say, God's got me. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best, do what I need to, do what I should. And when God and I working together, I'll be okay. It's not like that at all. It's not repelling. It's skydiving. Where everything is provided for you. And now you have to jump. Paul took a leap of faith into the arms of Jesus, and he was safe. Paul says, this means so much to me now that all I want is to follow Jesus wherever he takes me. Look at the last two verses. He says that I may know him. I want his righteousness, not my own. I don't want what I can earn. That's what he's saying in verse 9. I want the righteousness from God that depends on faith, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you'll notice, Paul's actually starting with the best part. He says, I want to know the power of Jesus' resurrection, and I also want to share in his suffering. And as I continue to follow him, if my own death is required, if suffering leads me to giving my life on earth for Christ, that's what I am glad to do so long as I have the resurrection and come back from the dead. The former Pharisee had no interest in suffering. He was well guarded in self-righteousness. He thought suffering was for others and blessing was for him. What Paul's saying here is, I already have Christ now, wherever Jesus takes me, even if that means sharing in suffering so that other people may hear of him, that's what I'm willing to do. So long as I have him, I will be satisfied with that because Christ is my treasure. What Paul's telling us in this passage is, church, when Christ is our treasure, everything on, else, on earth looks like trash. It's of no value. It's of no help. And let me be clear and all be done. My great fear in contemporary Christianity, and I can't worry about the rest of the world, my great fear for our church 
is that Jesus will be a feature in your life instead of your treasure. People all over the world are attending churches, sometimes by the dozens and other times by the many, many, many thousands. And they, people have never come to this realization, to this, the Bible calls it repentance, a U-turn, a turnaround from going your own way, walking in your own righteousness to a complete stop in your tracks, this is wrong, I'm lost, and trusting Jesus to save you. My great fear for you is that you would attend here and enjoy it here, enjoy the music, enjoy the teaching, enjoy the groups, enjoy the ministries that we do, all the various things, and think that with Christ as a feature in your life, your life is better, and discover at the judgment that you didn't trust Him completely and make Him genuinely your Savior. He's a rescuer. He's coming for you. He died for you to demonstrate God's great love to you and to welcome you into God's family by His achievement, not by your own, but you have to trust Him. There are countless, their only judgment will tell us how many people are naming Christ without actually knowing Him. And they know His name and they drop His name as if the mere knowledge of His name were enough and sufficient. And they'll say, I once prayed a prayer or I go to church. Listen, let me be perfectly clear. Going to this church will do you no good. In fact, it will do you great harm if you hear me or others telling you week after week, it's only Jesus, trust Him. It will only increase your trouble when you hear who the Savior is and continue making Him a feature instead of a treasure. See, I talked about Jesus' as parachute. It's better than that because He's not a device. He's a person. And he is a person who is talking to some of you right now very clearly. He is using your conscience and he is speaking to you by the love of his Holy Spirit saying you need to be saved. You need to give up on churchianity. You need to give up on doing your best and you need to trust me. You need to humble yourself and throw yourself on my mercy and I will save you. And he will. He will not disappoint anyone who trusts him. He promised that. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. He's not going to reject you. But if you make him a feature, that's not enough. If you make him part of the routine, part of the religiosity, if church is a shot on Sunday to get through the week to the next spiritual burst, it's not enough. He's a person who deserves and, can, and deserves your love and can save you from everything, including the judgment to come. You see, it's better than a parachute. It's like me when I was seven years old. We went on a church picnic. And I climbed a tree along with some other boys who were older and far more athletic. And they were tired of the tree. And there's not much to do in a tree unless there's a tree house. So they tired of it rather quickly. And they climbed down. And I tried to follow after them and realized that strange discovery that sometimes there's easy to go up and impossible to come down. And I was embarrassed because they had run off. So I started speaking politely from the tree. Hey! <laughs> Sing a little bit, you know, hope somebody notices. No takers, everybody's far away. So finally, and I'm realizing that I was going to live in the tree, <laughs> if I didn't humble myself, I started calling out in help for Ernest. And my dad finally perked up from about probably 80 yards away. And he came over with an amused smile on his face. <laughs> Looks up and says, hey, buddy, 
Hey, Dad. Come on down. I can't. No, look, you can't. Put your foot there. Dad, I try. I can't. And then he said what I was hoping he wouldn't say. Jump. Now, I'd played catch with my dad. And I'd seen him drop a few easy ones. So I didn't really want to. I got my hands, as far as catching his concern, from my father, and I knew we already shared that trouble, so I didn't want to jump. And he said, buddy, I'll catch you. Come on. And after about 30 seconds of hesitation, with my legs clenching and trying to wrap around the tree, I jumped, and in, in retrospect, it was probably about three feet. <laughs> I don't know. It looked like death to me. I'm sure my dad was laughing for very good reason, but you know what I found out? My dad caught me, put me back on my feet. I was fine. People will cling to self-righteousness all their lives, and it will cost them their life. What Jesus is asking you to do at the limit of your understanding and your pride is to trust him, not yourself, to leap into his arms, to trust him. He's never dropped anyone. He has forgiven. He has saved. He has brought into God's family. He has called by a new name every single person on earth who has ever trusted him. So I'm going to be crystal clear, and we haven't done this in years, but this morning I feel like I should. I want to give you a moment to consider whether Jesus is a treasure or a feature, and I want you to make sure of your own relationship with God this morning if you're not already very, very clear on that. Would you bow your head so we can pray together? Maybe you're one who's been doing your best, but listen, I'm not trying to be morbid and I'm certainly not trying to be threatening. I'm just telling you a fact about life that you know is true. There is a time when the God who made you and loved you will call you to account. If you are not absolutely sure and confident that you will stand in His presence completely clean and forgiven, if there's any trace of doubt of that in your life, I would ask you to do what two other people did in the first service, to identify that in a very simple way. This won't save you. It's not part of any religious tradition. It's just a simple way for me to ask you to make it personal and real to yourself. If you're not sure, but today you want to take Jesus as your Savior, you'll say, I'm, I can't do it myself. I thought I could. All my best strivings I'm figuring out, I just understood that my conscience told me it's not going to work. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to jump and trust Jesus to save, to catch me. Would you put your hand up and say, that's exactly what I need to do? Would you be clear about it? Anybody like that? Yes, I see a couple. Anybody else? Thank you, sir. Anyone else? Understand, raising your hand's not in the Bible, okay? Thank you, ma'am. That's just a, a way to make it personal, because sometimes at this point, we kind of fade out into thinking about what's going to come up next and what everybody else should do. I'm talking to you. If you're not absolutely certain, would you identify that need by putting your hand up? Anybody else? Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Now listen, there's no magic words either. A parrot can say a prayer. 
But if you'll say that you're sick and tired of yourself and you're not going to strive in your own righteousness, you're not going to try to be good enough for God, you're going to trust Jesus to be good enough for God. Tell him that you're sorry for your sin and you want him really to be your savior and your boss. Just pray with me right now something that sounds like this. Lord, I cannot possibly save myself. I'm sorry for my sin. I've done my best, and now I know it'll never be enough, but you will be enough because you died for my sins and you rose from the dead so that I could live forever with you. Jesus, please forgive me, cleanse me, bring me into your family, give me assurance and confidence that trusting you is enough. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You don't need my words. You need to move your trust from Jesus on to Jesus from yourself, from yourself to the Lord Jesus. If you've done that, we're going to receive our offering, and I would love to know that you've done that today. If you raise your hand, if you're not sure of your salvation with Christ, if you prayed with me, please find the card there in your bulletin. Fill that out and return it to us in the offering. And God bless you, church, as you give. Listen, we've got... We've got a lot of work to do here. We think that God has prepared our church for good things to bring more and more people to salvation in Him. We need to have a community to serve. I've been telling you we've got a bathroom to build because we are maxed out, as you've seen. Our giving together, our loving, our serving, our financial faithfulness makes all, everything that God wants to happen come to life in our church. So we're going to finish our, this service by singing to the Lord one more time. We have 10,000 reasons and more to bless him. If you've prayed, if you're trusting Christ, if you're not sure but you have questions, use that card and return it to us as, as we give. God bless you.